Listening to Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, welcome to Christopher Schmidt. Thank welcome. you, T. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, it's it's lovely to yeah, see you, Chris, you. and and um, and we're we've got your book, the next in line, in front of us, um, mm-hmm. out by Slope Slope Editions Press, and it was actually the the winner mm-hmm. uh, in 2007 of the mm-hmm. their book prize, Slope Editions yeah. book prize. Sure was, and. Um, <laughs> And stay tuned for further further award <laughs> notification <laughs> from Chris Schmidt. Um, that was Grizzly Bear, Chris. Mm-hmm. You you chose that as our our lead in song. I did, yeah. I'm I'm very excited because they're going to be playing here in Ann Arbor, right? the The University Musical Society on September 26th, I believe. Yeah, well, I'm pretty that's, sure that's. I, I'm sure. Alex, I'm pretty sure that's Alex correct. Alex Bellhodge, <laughs> the engineer, is going to check that out right big now. Big advertisement <laughs> for for Grizzly Bear. Unexpected advertisement. But, yeah. Exactly, but that's yeah. what radio is about, yeah. right? We yeah. got to get the music, the word out yeah. about poems. Music. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, just just by way of introduction, I'm going to read the short bio on on uh, the back of Chris's book, the next in line, the book. Here goes. Christopher Schmidt studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and teaches at Hunter College. He lives in Brooklyn. And we're here to tell you today that all of that is wrong. Because <laughs> this was published in 2008, the book. And a lot has changed since then. Yeah. For example, Ann Arbor is in the picture now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I moved here to Ann Arbor um, about two weeks ago, two and a half, three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm teaching now at the university. So and, yeah. and working at, at Sweetland. Sweetland Writing Center with you, T, my, my colleague there. That's yeah. right. So you know where to find us <laughs> exactly. now. On the first floor of Angel. <laughs> Angel Hall. Angel yeah. Hall. That's right. And where the angels are. That's right. And how 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 are you? How long did you live in Brooklyn? Because that's where you went for your um, to pursue to write your dissertation. Yeah, that's correct. So I've been in I've been in I was in New York for about twelve years. Um, I've been there. Yeah. So after after I graduated as a as an undergraduate, I went to New York and I worked for several years in magazines 
and yeah, tell us about your your past. It was yeah. design work and yeah. So I, I, after I graduated, even when I was still in college, I had an internship at the New Yorker magazine and um, worked there then for three or four years after I graduated college. So that was like a really exciting and very New York place to be. Yeah, and and yeah. how and you came you were born and raised in North Dakota. Yeah. So how did a Dakota <laughs> um, youth make it over to the big city? Chris? Yeah. Can you and and you're a poet. So Yeah. Were you hitchhiking? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I wasn't I didn't really discover myself as a poet until I was in college. I went um I went to Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And yeah, how did it happen then? I had a great teacher. I had a, um, his name is Wayne Kustenbaum, and I, he's he's um, he's written a nice little blurb for me on the back of my book. And he's also he was also my graduate school mentor and advisor. So I, I studied with him for quite a while, like about ten years, including undergraduate and graduate work. Yeah, um, with a big interval of time between those between those two like studying experiences. And and what was it like? Was it a class that you took just because it sounded Different or it was I mean very similar to the um, you know, I, somewhat similar to the um, the freshman writing requirement here English one twenty five there was an English one twenty five there and um, he was one of the instructors teaching that he was a new I think assistant professor there maybe associate professor and he had just published this book called uh, the Queen's Throat um, homosexuality. Um, desire and opera. I, I, I think I'm, I'm mangling this the subtitle a little bit, but that's that's close. It's definitely called The Queen's Throat, and it's, it's still one of my favorite books. And I discovered it in the bookstore. I think like maybe two weeks after I arrived there, and it really spoke to a lot of my interests and like and um, feelings. I mean, he's talking a lot about like diva culture in that book, and it and it definitely resonated with me in certain like sort of how diva. Well. It's it's so embarrassing to talk about, but um, is it? No, it is. It no, is. that web that web talk show you were on. Now that might have been embarrassing, and I don't know if you want to tell the listeners about that. But but yeah, t- tell, yeah. well, tell us about diva. Yeah, yeah, diva culture. Well, so I mean, I think as a as a gay youth in North Dakota, growing up, I was you know I was ve- I felt very um, alone, and was looking for um, places in popular culture where I could identify with figures who, you know, would, were sort of, you know, flaming or performative or, you know, just really flamboyantly exciting. And one of those places where I identified was, um, was fashion, which is, it's, which, which is why I'm embarrassed to talk about it because fashion and, and poetry are so, you know, they're, they're typically hand in hand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, style certainly and poetry are hand in hand. So yeah, I, I think there is like a connection. But, but, but I know some ragamuffin poets. Uh, you, you, I might even be one. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> the poet as rag picker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I was, I was, I became, and this is what becomes embarrassing. I became obsessed with this supermodel named Linda Evangelista, who's this very, who um, you know, maybe many nice realistic, blue eyes, beautiful eyes. Yeah, a very um, masculine androgynous look to her, which I think was also part of the appeal. And so, and so, yeah, I'm not sure how we got on that subject, but but the, sort of the strangeness of that attachment to her was something that I was really interested in exploring. And Wayne's book, The Queen's Throat, was something that really resonated with me because he was talking about his diva attachments to figures like Maria Callas and other, you know, really important opera stars. And this kind of the way that these females 
um, through their anger and through their their drama, express these kind of inner turmoil that that many people, but especially gay men, might feel um, in a time when they're closeted. And so they're and so the ability to see these dramas acted out on stage was something that was very exciting to me. Was yeah. so was that was that the situation then in North Dakota? For you, Chris, yeah, yeah. when you were there. Yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, Wayne's book, I think, was also interesting because he's talking, of course, about a classical music milieu. And and I was also very involved in classical music as a as an adolescent. I played oboe in the symphony. And um, and so... After so, hearing um, <laughs> Peter's wolf. Like, okay. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, Peter and the wolf. Yeah, yeah. and the oboe is, I think, the duck, yes. right, who gets eaten, right? But, but a really yeah. c- compelling character yeah. while... Exactly. Yeah, lasts. this kind of beautiful piquant quality of the of the oboe. Yeah, was something that really attracted me. And do you still yeah. do you still? Play? I don't. I sold my oboe a few years ago, but I did I did play through college, and it was yeah, it was a really wonderful. So so you yeah. were in North Dakota, and North Dakota. and, and yeah. not um and so not necessarily even writing. Like, were you yeah. did you do any form of writing, or were you more um like kind of close did. What were yeah. your outlets then? Yeah. Your creative outlets, or did it happen literally when you? You found a way to get to New York yeah. City, study. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, certainly, I was, I was, I was writing, but, but it hadn't well, taken yeah. the form of poetry yet. But my connection with poetry then, and I think that's that's why it's something that 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 resonated with me later and continues to resonate with me, was because I, again, this is so dorky and embarrassing to talk about, but um, I did these kind of like forensic. Um, uh, not, in the, not in the scientific sense, but in terms of like speech and debate tournaments where I would compete in poetry interpretation. And so I would, you know, you would get, sometimes it would be extemporaneous and they would give you like a poem by Sylvia Plath. And then you would get up in front of a room and like read the poem in this very, you know, dramatic, dramatic. compelling way or mysterious, you know, and, um, and I remember, like, one of the, you know, I mean, some of the poems were really bad. I remember for a while I was reading, like, this Conrad Aiken poem, who was this kind of forgotten modernist, like, sort of the T.S. Eliot's kind of um, middle-brow cousin, or you know, of sorts. And um, but, but definitely, I think reading the poetry and, you know, memorizing the poems was something that, even though I wasn't writing them at that point, like, the forms were something that I was absorbing. And then also, I think, performing was also something that sort of connected with me and connected with my other interests in in music and theater. So yeah, so that I think the poetry kind of emerged later but had this kind of this I had this formative experience with it in high school. Yeah. Yes. And then and now it seems like well then you went to Yale mm-hmm. and you took this class and you began mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. Um and so and it took the the form of poems yeah. To begin with, yeah. Well, I mean, it was. It, I mean, this. I mean, this is something like n- now that I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. I often have my students do imitations of of works that we read because that's actually how my my interest in writing poetry came about. It was not that I took a poetry writing class, but I took a poetry, you know, like a literary criticism class where we were studying, you know, the great poets from, you know, I think Milton to Emily Dickinson or you know some sort of like you know arbitrary time period, and. And Wayne Kestenbaum would have me, you know, would have us students not just writing about the poems, but writing sort of miniature poems in imitation of the different poets that we read. And that to me was like an electric experience where my interest in poetry really came alive. And that's something that I that I try to do in my classes as well, is to have students like emulate the different forms that we're reading, you know, whether it's essays or poems or whatnot. Yeah. Because then you're actually in it, because you're taking it apart to exactly. understand it part bit yeah. by bit. Yeah, and like, Im- and imitating and, it yes. in a way. Yeah, and and putting your voice in an, you know another person's style, 
so yeah, and this this idea of like inhabiting styles or inhabiting you know clothing or inhabiting different personae, yeah, is something that that was is an interest that was with me, and I think was you know is an interest that a lot of gay men, not exclusively of course, but a lot of gay men share this idea of like you know putting on the mask to tell the truth, which is like the slogan of the Mattachine Society, which was like one of the first gay rights organizations in the fifties. And so I like this idea of like putting on masks and and sort of speaking through them, like whether it's the mask of like, you know, some uh, an opera diva or a supermodel or like, you know, a, the, a voice like Sylvia Plath's or Emily Dickinson's. Or, or a yeah. voice on your blog, perhaps. Yeah. Is that a different, is that, it, would you say that's a mask of a voice? Yeah, because absolutely. Because you, you speak about, or the writer of the blog yeah. um, speaks about the persona of the blog as the next in line as mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, let's hear more. Maybe we'll, we'll hear a poem okay. from your book, sure. Chris. When you come back, we'll take okay. a short break. When okay. we come back, we'll both be here. Um, today on Living Writers, I'm so happy to have Christopher Schmidt here. His book, The Next in Line. Uh, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back. Welcome back. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on Living Writers, we have Christopher Schmidt here uh, in the studio. His book, The Next in Line from Slope Editions. Um, so, Chris, mm-hmm. we've been filling in parts of your biography, updating it. So, mm-hmm. um, let's. would you mind reading us a poem now? Sure, I'd love okay. to. Okay, we'll okay. have a poem then. <laughs> okay. This is a poem called By the Sea, and it's a, a, a chuzzle or guzzle, which is a Persian form in which in which the the end of the of, of these different couplets is repeated so you'll probably hear the same phrase repeated but each time a little bit twisted okay by the sea what kind of sauce is by the sea sticky dog penned pages by the sea 
Merman Man, Peter's Town, Lansbury, Vocalese Memorial in By the Sea. Stein to Alice, Baby, Let's Be Regular, Finding Bottom Nature by the Sea. Sweet Sweat Pages, Shore Odes Genius Perspiration by the Sea. Marie, Betrothed from Austria, I've been to paradise, but never by the sea. Euro Disney draws out the incontinent. Mickey leaks on Goofy by the sea. Pat prefers beaches and mountains. Darling, no such thing as by the sea. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> um, so, so you managed to get... Um, Gertrude and mm-hmm. Alice B. To- Gertrude mm-hmm. Stein and Alice mm-hmm. B. Toklas in there, mm-hmm. and so that reminds me that your 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 dissertation mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. has this wonderful name, um, <laughs> waste matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Because you're so you're fully steeped in poetry of the twentieth century, yeah, and and how that affects your own writing. Yeah. that w- would be great. Yeah, I don't know if you n- know that, but I actually th- I have a chapter in the dissertation on Gertrude Stein. So so yeah, so that was a good, that was a, a a clairvoyant connection to make tea. It was beautiful. It must be these energy <laughs> drinks. Today's Living Writers sponsored by free cans of venom available outside <laughs> near Angel Hall. Yeah. If we if we don't live through the program, you'll know not to drink it yourselves. Venom. Yeah. <laughs> right. But no, back to um, the waste matter. Yeah. So I'm right. So so right. So I so I worked in magazines and and then w- different websites for several years and then I and then I which was taking me into interesting places but was taking me away from writing in a strange way even though I was working in environments where there was a lot of writing because at the New Yorker you, you were yeah. mentioning mentioning off air yeah right? would you yeah yeah so so I was I in addition to being an English major and a writing major in college I also had sort of a graphic design minor. And so when I graduated, that's something that kind of it, it was much more saleable than, than being an English major. And so it was kind of immediately I got sort of sucked into that. And I, of course, I thought, well, the New Yorker isn't a bad place to be, you know, as, as, a, oh, as no. either a graphic designer or a um, or as a, you know, as an aspiring writer. But um, it was strange. And this is what we were talking about during the break is that I, I actually found myself being there, it kind of shut down my, um, you know, my, my, my confidence as a writer or my playfulness as a writer, because I, you know, looking at, you know, the sort of the marketing and the business of, of promoting the different writers that they have in the magazine and, and just kind of like, you know, the importance of the magazine and the, the, the prominence of it was, was very intimidating to me at that time. And it also was, um, you know, as some as a poet who is maybe interested in experiment more than um, kind of like naked expression of 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 um, you know, I don't want to like malign New Yorker poetry in any way, but but um, way to wake people up by saying naked expression. Yeah, 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 <laughs> naked. Um, it was um, yeah. So I felt myself um, so in some ways like disaligned with the the ethos of the New Yorker, even though it was a very exciting and glamorous place to be. It it felt um, it didn't feel exactly like the right fit for me, 
and was and was difficult to, for me to like define myself as a writer while I was there. And so that's an amazing that's amazing and very grown up to, like, to actually uh-huh. have that realization mm-hmm. because you could get caught up in that. Yeah. I would imagine as well. Yeah. So so what happened next then for you? Well, so I did I did um, I went to a, a number of different um, websites um, where I worked as a designer as well, like Nerve.com, which was like a really fun place to work because it's a website that sort of is. In, as if the New Yorker did a special issue on sex and sexuality, so it was kind of like a you know like sort of a, a more naughty version of the of the New Yorker. And then after working there for a few years, I, I really was itching to get back to my writing. So I I returned to graduate school, um, and I didn't I chose not to pursue an MFA, but to get a PhD, um, partly as a partly just thinking practically that that was in some although not necessarily true, but that was in some ways like a more practical decision that, that a PhD is a more, um, you know, marketable degree, even though it's really not in this, in this market anymore. No, very, I, no, I, very think, marketable, I think you're actually but, onto something, Chris. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, also just simply like, th- like sort of casting around for who my favorite writers and writing mentors were. And I returned to my undergraduate mentor, Wayne Kestenbaum. And so I really followed him and, and to graduate school. He was teaching at the graduate center at the Sydney university of New York. And so it was actually the only graduate school I applied to because that was it was that was for me like the word I, I really wanted to follow him and sort of reconnect with him. You and knew who you wanted to work with. Exactly. And, yes. Yeah. Um, and then gradually studying with him, I, I sort of the, in writing about poetry and reading poetry, my own interest in writing poetry developed and I began to take poetry classes there and, you know, with other people throughout the city. And so gradually I sort of started, you know, defining myself again as a poet and putting a manuscript of poems together. And you were able to do that concurrently with working on this dissertation. Yeah. That was, because it would be interesting to see, did you feel like, because it, it, let me see here. It seems like some of the poems are almost in conversation Mm -hmm. or feeding off Mm -hmm. what you were like the Dada and for example, Gertrude Stein, like you said. So like, is that, is Absolutely. that is that what you found was happening with your work? It was sort of this conversation that was also going on with with what you were um, steeping, like yeah. your learning. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. And my tastes, you know, changed also in graduate school as I was reading new writers and more experimental writers like Gertrude Stein or Harriet Mullen or Kenneth Goldsmith. And, um, yeah, and I think it was that same idea of, like, as an undergraduate, you know, sort of, like, reading these works and then imitating them is something that I I felt like I was doing in graduate school as well, like, just not for a class. I was doing it for, you know, on my own. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely right um, that I was, yeah, putting myself in conversation and, like, discovering. I think it's really about, like, discovering how literature works by, like, writing through it instead of writing about it, you know. Yeah, or, or, you know, putting it on as a persona or a mask, you know, and speaking through it rather than just speaking to it. You know, so, so yeah. And, but I should say that I didn't, you know, I didn't write my dissertation at exactly the same time as I was writing the book. Like it all, you know, it's kind of like I would study for the orals. And then once I finished that, then I would write, you know, like, you know, 20 poems or something like that while I was, you know, waiting for approval of my prospectus or something like that. Yeah. So, so it wasn't like this superhuman feat. Just it was like in the gaps and spaces of graduate school is like where the poetry happened. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, how did you come by then? That <clears throat> the title <laughs> is so intriguing, and it mm-hmm. seems like it's it could mean many things. <laughs> so 
but waste matters, like what, for 20th century poetry. <laughs> Do you want to say a few words yeah, about that? Or? Yeah, I mean, I was... You don't I was, have to defend it. <laughs> I was thinking that, yeah, I was thinking this, this question might come up, as it often does come up, and sort of how I answer the question depends on, you know, the day of the week and maybe what I ate for breakfast. Um, so Wednesday is, so, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I was, th- I mean, I was thinking a little bit about, like, about fashion, actually. I attended... Um, you know, many people who are who are listening to this might know that um, Patricia Yeager is a professor here in the English department who I haven't who I haven't even met, but um, she works a lot on waste, and so it's kind of this strange coincidence that I ended up coming here, and um, you know, being someplace where someone who's so involved in talking about waste. Um, is also working, and she and waste of, of what do you mean? Well, like you're okay, not so talking she, in an environmental sense. You're talking about a word sense or yeah, history. Well, I think I mean or... I'm talking kind of about all those categories. Um, and Patricia Yeager, I'm, I'm, and I just mentioned her because she I heard a lecture that she gave on Monday, so she's very fresh in my mind, and she really is talking about kind of like infrastructural destruction and you know environmental collapse and. The, the ways that um, American c- accumulation, you know, consumer accumulation, is in a way a, like a, a kind of creating of waste. Because every time we purchase something, it's something that's like inevitably something we're going to throw out. And so thinking about that in terms of poetry as being a place where maybe the opposite happens or where waste is recovered, I think back to like Baudelaire and his and his version of like the rag picker that that the the critic Walter Benjamin has like picked up and talked about a lot. And so this idea of like the poet as someone who picks over like the you know the rags and the discards of society and collects them and keeps them very um you know finds new value in these discards. And I think you know the marginal status of poetry in our society is maybe one reason why poets are are drawn to this task of waste collecting. Because, um, you know, they're used to being a little bit outside of the charmed circle. And so that to me is a, that's sort of the, my beginning point in talking about waste as it affects 20th century or as it as it interacts with 20th century American poetry. And there's a there are a lot of places where that interaction happens, like in the work of A.R. Ammons. Where he has this great long poem called Garbage. Um, I talk about I have a chapter in my dissertation on John Ashbery and how he kind of, um, you know, his whole his whole method is about using the kind of the found the found language or the discarded language or the language we don't normally pay attention to, which are oftentimes like cliches, and he kind of dusts them off and gives them new life in his work. So those are some instances where I'm talking about like how like cultural waste and waste in language or like wasted language kind of come together in certain poets' works. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Hot that's, dog. That, that's yeah. amazing. That's, 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 that's the two-minute pressy of my <laughs> dissertation. <Yeah. laughs> and, and now we're going to take a short break, but okay. we'll be back. And we'll hear f- more from Christopher Schmidt, his book, The Next in Lime. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be back.
Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Christopher Schmidt is here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, and thanks very much uh, to Brian Delaney and Alex Bell Hodge for making us sound good <laughs> and getting the music to come through both ears on our headphones. Um, <laughs> not always easy. Not an easy thing. Um, and so let's let's talk a little bit about then the kinds of writing. So you've so you've done you've proved yourself in the academic sphere, doctor. <laughs> May I call you doctor? Yeah. Um, and so so you've done that, and uh-huh. and and you've got a, a book of poems, uh-huh. um, very experimental in nature. And uh-huh. we and we were talking earlier about how even some of the effect is is visual. So it's mm-hmm. it's good. Mm-hmm. It, it comes out by listening, but also it's mm-hmm. it's it's deepened by seeing as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have this this blog mm. uh, with, that shares the the title of your your yeah. first book of poems, mm-hmm. thenextinline.com. dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. if anyone's you know following along, mm-hmm. they can they can go to the site now as well. Um, and so that's that's a blog where you you have you know so another type of writing. Mm-hmm. How is that writing different yet again from what you've been doing, and what does that allow that these other um, I don't know this these other writings styles have not yeah um yeah that's an interesting question i'm uh, i'm a i'm a little bit I, I maybe everyone who has a blog is a little bit embarrassed about their blog but i'm i'm a little bit embarrassed about my blog i mean mostly mostly because i don't i i i was very excited about it for you know maybe six months and now now it becomes i think that excitement wears off and it becomes a little bit of a duty to keep you know, to keep it updated. Because was it back in June 2007 when it came out, or yeah. when did you? I mean, I think I was blogging a little bit before the the book came out, um, and then yeah, I've, I've continued to blog. But then things get really busy, and then you don't have time to blog, and so. And do you feel yeah. guilty about that then? Like, I yeah, I guess I feel a little bit guilty. Um, I mean, the blog is also like just a, a place for me to like keep you know because I do kind of other reviews of poetry for like I mean, for like Time Out New York and like Boston Review and things like that. And so th- that's a place. Where you know, it's just kind of like a, a place to like post your, you know, the latest update on what what you're doing in other spheres besides poetry. But yeah, I mean, I think that's like it's definitely an interesting question and in thinking about like who you're addressing and finding an audience and and having a community of readers and and yeah, all those questions come up. I think the blog started. I mean, part of it was like this sort of like you know, sort of lazy idea of like publicizing the book, you know, because any book of poetry needs publicity and support of some kind but I think it really came out of um kind of finishing a major chunk of the dissertation which I wrote I think I wrote four chapters in one year and so that was like a really like like a big push a big push to get that out and then afterwards I felt totally exhausted by it and and felt like the the sort of like the 40 50 page you know thesis driven academic essay was such a dinosaur like it was such a dead form and wanting to do something that was more immediate and more fun and more playful. Um, and so that that's where the, the blog came about. And so in some ways, I feel like the blog is is similar, is more similar to the poems in in their in their brevity and in their shortness and in their pithiness. Um, whereas, I mean, it's such a different kind of work writing something where you sit down and like maybe you craft a poem in a day or you craft a blog entry in a few hours versus a, a chapter where it involves like, you know, months and months of research and months of rewriting and you know this frustration and then you know all this for you know maybe a readership of like five 
people. You know, yeah. your your dissertation advisors, and then the you know maybe the people who might read it when you apply for a job. You know, so or maybe more people listening now because I'm Absolutely. certainly intrigued <laughs> after hearing your your earlier synopsis of it. I was. I was like John Ashbery. Yeah. Check. That's that's yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and you were in one of the you know you wear several hats here uh-huh. at the university coming mm-hmm. not in a fashionable way but I'm sure you have fashionable hats I do have some hats right. that I can that I can pull out I was wearing a lot of hats in August okay. so maybe I'll maybe I'll break out the hats more to come yeah. in the winter, winter yeah. months in. Um, but but you're also here um, for like new media classes mm-hmm. for for yeah. Sweetland Writing Center yeah. as well and and so this does this give an outlet for the blogs are you going yeah. to be teaching uh, blog writings and yeah uh, yeah i'm right and right now i'm teaching a class um it's 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 based around google maps of all things and but, that's on your that's on your site yeah as well so There's I, a, yeah i started mapping or uh, blogging about maps yes. yeah which is kind of yeah a fun and unknown interest it's kind of strange how this interest came about like sort of nat- sort of by chance but you know i guess like all things that happen in your life you look back and it does kind of make a strange sort of sense, like thinking back to like the way that I've, I've done work in both like the visual field of graphic design and, the, and writing and a map is a place where, where, you know, visuals and writing come together on the same surface. And um, as is a blog, because in your book of poems, because mm-hmm. I know everybody might not ha- have a copy in front of them yet, but um, there's, a, there's, um, there's a great image on the cover but it's not when you're inside the book mm-hmm. you're not working from image whereas mm-hmm. on your the blog mm-hmm. the next in line mm-hmm. there's there's images everywhere different yeah. different medium mm-hmm. but that lends itself to that yeah yeah i think of yeah and i mean this is like a little bit off topic but just thinking about like i feel like so i talked about like you know in my dissertation i'm thinking of like the the poem as a form of like waste management right but my so that was my theory of of poet of poetics in like 2008 and my my theory of poetics like the two, mafia yeah yeah <laughs> my, my theory of poetics in like 2009 is like the poem is like a map because like on the map like where the writing you know like where the words are are very important in the same way that in a poem where the words are on a page are also very important in a, in a way that I think like in prose, they're not like you can kind of reflow prose. And like, you know, if the beginning of a sentence, you know, happens to be, you know, to the left of the paragraph or to the right of the paragraph, it doesn't really matter. But in poetry, like where on the surface of the page, the word appears, like it's if it's at the end of a, a line or it's at the beginning of a you know another line down the like those sort of decisions are very significant. So I'm sort of like, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining like my next project actually kind of like interacting in some ways with this idea of the map, like poems as maps, which is, you know, so that's sort of where my, my work and my teaching are kind of coming together and going. Well, that's next. lovely. Yeah. That's like when things are, there's firing on it's, all yeah. the cylinders. Yeah. All those exciting connections that we hope that we can make in our classes. Yeah. Yes. And so, and so that's a new project that's, yeah. that's on the, the deck. does yeah. that mean also that you might, um, would you still, do you imagine, or I know this is all in the abstract, mm-hmm. but that you would be using like literally words to form or, or do you mean even using maps or types of maps or things that could appear as maps and so including images in the next book as well yeah that's i mean that's i mean that's an interesting question i'm not sure yeah i'm not sure about having i mean some of my favorite recent books of poetry do use images and do use form like i think of like claudia rankines i'm not sure how you say her last names don't let me be lonely which is this really beautiful like you know sort of um bristling 
um, indictment of many things in the contemporary world, but like uses a lot of really interesting images next to the kind of prose poems that she uses. And so that I think is, is a really interesting form, like sort of yeah, bringing the, the poetry and the images together into the same book. Yeah. And, and on your um, in blog, The mm-hmm. Next in Line, mm-hmm. I was looking at part of like some of the, your ideas and theories of maps and how you were mm-hmm. um, uh, kind of uh, wondering about how people are so interested in Google Maps and mm-hmm. in the actual, um, the way that the satellites are able to give us mm-hmm. the actual images of mm-hmm. places, mm-hmm. but that we're like kind of you know in our rooms or or it, with our screens, yeah. Rather than and being completely enthralled by these virtual places <laughs> right. that are actually real places, right? But that we're sort of we're sort of um, anesthetized or like we're we're like we're subsisting. It's, it's like, I mean, not that everything is like the Matrix, but there, yeah, there's this idea that like like we're we're okay with the simulacrum of the place as presented to us by Google rather than going to the actual place or that you know yeah, there's this interesting idea of like does like virtual reality or you know whatever however you want to describe the internet and its relationship to the actual physical reality like what is that relationship about does the internet like does it take us away from that reality in that space or does it connect us to that space and does it reveal more about that space because we suddenly have this new access to information so that's my sort of geeky interest in in maps right now and and that's sort of informing this class that i'm teaching right now yeah and I think as poets, it's it's like I think it's part of the the, the work of the poet to be like it's mm-hmm. not okay yeah. in some level, like yeah. if, to be anesthetized or yeah. um, so to sort of bring bring that it's not okay yeah. back into it. Yeah, like the poet seems. I think um, Ann Carson talks about this, like in who's also know, at Michigan yes. here. Um, and I think in one of her first books, like the Economy of the Unlost, which was which was actually not a poetry book, but a like a sort of an academic book in some way about um, Paul Ceylon and a Greek poet Simonides, and she talks about like some, like the poet seeing a lack at the table or some you know that the poet comes to the feast and but unlike the other people at the table, the poet recognizes that there's something missing or there's something wrong with this feast. So yeah, I not think that, that we're all a bunch of <laughs> negative Nellies, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Let's hear. Could we hear another poem? Sure, oh, absolutely. Then? That would be that would be great. And then we'll take a, sh- a short break, and, and then we'll be sure. back to talk a bit more. So this there's a the middle section of the book is called Arcades Polari, and um, a lot of the book deals with gay identity. And Polari is this kind of um, gay lingo that was used in Britain in the mid century, like say like the the 40s and 50s. And um, arcades, as people here in Ann Arbor might know from Nichols Arcades, is like a, is sort of a like you know turn of the century Parisian um, shopping center. So this is kind of like playing on like these ideas of like fashion and gay identity and and the ruins and the idea of that like you know like shopping can be a form of like waste making. So I'm going to read, and I have a different little a sequence of short prose poems. So I'll read one of them. It's called Arcades Polari Two. Almost at mother's breast, I began assimilating. We're cold, they moo, because we're so low-fat. Stomachs rusted, needs a muffler. Coat slicked with oil, neck choked with rainbow. Duck, do your heels hurt from spurring? Do your brains hang low? So chapbooks are gay books? Artifact, reverse the slide from books to chaps. You do the math. He posed with an amphora covering his bits. He posed with anaphora covering his bits. Woman is a ruins. We stock 
the peristyle. Thank you, Chris. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Christopher Schmidt on the program today. We'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Christopher Schmidt is here in the studio. His book, The Next in Line, Slope Editions Press, published 2008. Um, maybe we can start out by talking about um, the press, like what it was like mm-hmm. um, to, to win the prize. It was mm. probably a real downer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then sort of the design, since that's part of, like, that's your thing as yeah. well. Yeah. How much you say you had and how the book looks. Yeah. Um, um, the, working with the press was great. Um, I highly recommend other poets to um, submit manuscripts for the prize and um, work with Ethan Paquin and Chris Yankee and Jeannie Hogue. I worked with all of them closely, and they were all great to work with. Um, I actually designed the book myself. Um, and um, the cover image, which you pointed to, is this, um, this image of two fingers 
walking. And it's a cl- it's a very close up, and it's this kind of like grotesque image by this photographer named John Copeland's, who was um, and maybe that part of it, like it, my attraction to this image is knowing a little bit about him and his background because he. Um, I guess maybe like myself a little bit had some some career shifts in his life and he was the editor of Art Forum for many many years and then after he stopped being the editor of Art Forum and stopped being a writer journalist he turned to photography and became this self-portraitist at a very advanced age like let's say the age of like 65 or something and would take these really fascinating disturbing um, photographs of his body in you know an aged male body in close-up to the degree where Um, you know, there was a kind of repulsion with the images, but there's also this like beautiful abstraction that would happen. And so like here, this image of, of the fingers in profile walking, I mean, it looks a little bit like, like the, the, the fatty part of his finger looks a little bit like a, like a butt, like a buttock. Yeah. (laughs) And so I like this play between when you're like focusing really closely on something, how it becomes abstract and becomes something else. Because the photo itself is cropped, so you don't mm-hmm. actually see that the fingertips, like right. any part of the nail or that yeah. part of the joint yeah. of the finger. So at first you might think it's like it's like a tuber or like, you know, like a more, you know, unmentionable part of the male anatomy or, you know, any number of interesting things. And so like, there, yeah, so there is this like kind of like it's disfiguring. You might misrecognize mis- mis- it at first. It's it's erotic and repulsive at the same time. And, so. and so what, why that image for these poems? Yeah, well, I guess I was feeling, yeah, I mean, the poems, which you might not hear so much in the ones I'm reading for, you know, for the family <laughs> airtime of, of um, WCVN, um, there are a lot, you know, there is a lot of um, eroticism in the poems and but it's but it's also kind of like a, a thorny eroticism like a, it's not you know there's a salaciousness but there's also like a distance or like a certain um, you know I certainly have play and like and and fun in the poems but then there's also this kind of maybe like pessimism about sex and eroticism in general um, and so to me, this image kind of captured that in that there was like it's like it's sexual and it's it's appealing and engrossing but it's also kind of gross. And so that to me like sort of symbolizes what I was trying to express, I guess, about sex and sexuality in this book. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So did you come did you have this photo like already something that you had you knew about and had made these connections, Chris, or yeah. or was it something that they said, "Well, congratulations. Uh-huh. You've won the book prize. Yeah. Um you have a great amount of you know input yeah. in the design. Yeah. What do you want the cover yeah. to look like? I actually, yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I was casting around for different ideas for the cover, but I, I definitely chose this um, image myself. And I had taught um, a class at John Jay College in New York City, and had brought his work in as an example of like alternative. Um, it, the class was alternative autobiography and self portraiture, and so this and this was like a you know a very interesting you know, form of self-portraiture and that it's not, not glamorizing in any way. It's like very much naked and, and brutal and raw in some ways. And so, and Harry and Harry, (laughs) Harry, Harry Knuckles here. Um, so, um, so yeah, so I already knew about his work and I was, there was something that was, that that was appealing to me about it. And some, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure what that moment was when I decided to, to, to pick his, photographs but the, his estate was very um was very kind in letting me use the work so yeah. oh that was, what yeah. and was and how did you come up like decide the the title of the book because i imagine yeah. it was that like that too where it was just a moment where it was a snap where you're like this is what yeah. this is what leads people into my poem yeah 
So the the um the line comes from a from a poem. It's actually from the first poem in the book called "All Tomorrow's Parties." Yes. And um, the Velvet Underground illusion. Yeah, then. yeah. That which would be yeah that would be fun that would that would be fun to hear. Um, oh, that's true. But well, David Bowie David we'll... Bowie is close. It's funny when we were when we were thinking about picking music for the program. I I, I was thinking Lou Reed for some reason, and instead, instead I said David Bowie, which they just played in the last break. But yeah, that oh, would have wow. been a great song. That's to play. true. Well, um, well, you'll have to come back and yeah. we'll we'll pick up some more songs. Yeah, <laughs> you funny. only get five a time, Chris. <laughs> Greedy. Um, but uh, would you like to read this one? Then? Yeah, sure. All tomorrow's parties. Expect no takers. Don't hate queens. Where everyone is smoking is and is not here. Lumberjack stares at the boyfriend, the boyfriend. Serious? Serious? Like interns on TV. Like fun. Another malady. Cat and mouth and cant and mouse. My sentiments exact. Swallow. Some stumble pie could not but sweeten in a saucer. Tartar saucer. Dress mine with lime, with lime. Each one blows the next in line. Had I courage, I'd warm the others. Night, night, the only greasing. The wind troubles me also. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> So, so there's to say the obvious, like, <laughs> uh-huh. like, 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 there's wordplay uh-huh. and humor in there, uh-huh. and um, but, but pathos too, like mm-hmm. this, the, the, yeah, to, what, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I want to <laughs> say other things that yeah, I think necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, all good things, but um, but like in in the end, it's it's interesting, like that your final line there, mm-hmm. um, uh, the wind um. Troubles, troubles me yeah, also. So mm-hmm. it's interesting because then that works uh, in cahoots there, uh, with like blow the next in line, like mm-hmm. that that play with that, wind. which yeah. is completely mm-hmm. different, but makes you think of it in a different mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> way. Yeah, yeah. For me, like the next, the next in line, which you know comes from that poem, and it has like a slight like sexual valence in this poem. But it also kind of plays a little bit in each of the different sections. It kind of returns, like the idea of like the assembly line, or in the, the last the last section of the book is called "Love Machines," which is a kind of like an exploration of like you know sort of like what we were talking about with the the Google Maps class that I'm teaching. The idea of like technology being alienating in some way. I mean, this is a very playful like you know I, I you know not to say that what I do is witty but like you know sort of like an arch an well, arch, an, an arch <laughs> approach witty. to the topic mm-hmm. but like again this idea of like the next in line and progress being something that you know is not always you know is not not necessarily for the better that, that you know that we it's good to be aware of, of the perils of progress as well as the advantages of progress so that that's sort of where the next in line is playing in the different each section it plays differently yes yeah. That's the, yeah. That's wonderful how that's working here, and and when you when you had this when they took this when Slope Editions took mm-hmm. on this manuscript, mm-hmm. Chris, mm-hmm. Um, did they also did you work with them about like in like in get in the poems with them as well mm-hmm. or were they more hands off? Uh, what how was yeah. that experience? They were um, they were very hands off about the the poems. Um, they did suggest like a reordering of the of the first section, which I think was very helpful. Um, 
and so I did. So I did reorder the poems there, and so and that was just again that was really helpful for me to think about the sectioning of the book and the book as not just a collection of random poems, but as like kind of a a story that tracks in some ways like um, you know a young person's you know development or you know coming of age. So for me, even though you know many, many of the poems may be playful and you know. Um, you know, I don't think that they're arcane, but but um, you know, you there's a slight obliqueness to the poems, um, but for me, intentional, intentional, the, yeah, or like a, there's as like, a mask like, as well, yeah. There's an armoring, like my references mm. in the poems are kind of an armor, and but there's a, like like as you say, like there's a kind of pathos, I think, like hiding behind that armor, and so for me, the like the, the slopes excellent suggestions was a way of like bringing that out and showing it like going from maybe like something that was damaged you know a damaged sensibilities to something that was more you know something that was more playful and whole and celebratory um and honest yeah. still yeah like what you what you wanted from these as a group because yeah. poems it's it's so different to think of them as being in the same jacket cover, mm-hmm. isn't it? When mm-hmm. you when it shifts, mm-hmm. when it becomes that, mm-hmm. then when they're just out there in the world on their own, or maybe one yeah. or two are on a website or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting, and it, it's interesting now to like to come back and do readings because there's this way, there's this like finality to the book. It's like, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking of like Sylvia Plath's um, um, book Ariel, and thinking about like the debates about how it was ordered about how um um ted hughes changed the the ordering of the poems and how that completely change changes our reading of the book as as being instead of something that ends on a hopeful or some you know at at least um ambivalent note you know it, it becomes this kind of like tragic um immolation of woman in distress and so, yeah, thinking and they there. reissued Ariel, didn't they, with they, her own yeah, notes and yeah, typescript? Yeah, a few years ago. Poems. Yeah, exactly. And do, so they reordered it at that time. Then exactly. Maybe, yeah. To yeah. reflect. Yeah. Although I think I think most people probably still read it in the Ted Hughes ordering. I'm not sure. Oh, that could be, unless yeah. it's in paperback in the other now, right? Yeah. Because that can be. Yeah. Hmm, curious. Yeah. Because you never know, do you? Because you make these things, and and then they go out in the world, but they. Yeah, they have a life of their own. Yeah, they yeah. do. And but it's pleasurable to come here and read a selection of the poems because then you're kind of like like you're saying this is a, like a portrait of yourself on this day. And so like returning to, um, you know, n- old work or work that's behind you, but you're still like in reordering the poems or choosing different poems to read. You're you're giving a different like kind of like portrait of yourself for that day. So yeah, it's a fun. It's it's fun to like go back and explore this work. And it's an it's an alternate self portrait mm-hmm. like that. That oh, seems yeah. to be yeah. coming back. Well, do you have like any words of wisdom for <laughs> <laughs> for the youth, the the poetry youth out there, whether they're in North Dakota or uh-huh. uh, Florida, wherever uh-huh. they where might be? Yeah, no, no wisdom except to follow your follow your your passions and your interests and. Um, and you know, I guess follow the the teachers that you love, whether they're teachers that you find between the pages of, uh, you know, between the covers of a book or 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 teachers that you find in the classroom. Because um, that's what you did. Yeah. You did that literally. And yeah. then, um, and and who were some of the the people who? Well, I guess you mentioned some people like Gertrude Stein, mm-hmm. where it seems mm-hmm. like you've 
they've impacted your writing, even though they're, mm-hmm. you know, in the pages, yeah. the covers, your relation, your, ima- like, not imaginary, <laughs> your imaginary friend, Gertrude Stein. <laughs> 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 How do those conversations go for you? <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, all the people that I wrote about in my dissertation, like Gertrude Stein, John Ashbery, um, James Schuyler, who's another New York school poet who's lesser, lesser known than than Frank O'Hara or John Ashbery, but is a really wonderful poet that everyone should go out and and read his work. Do you um, know Joseph Saravalo as well? Then, I, then tell me more. Well, no. Well, I'll tell you afterwards, yeah. but that's just another one of the... I think he lived in New Jersey, okay. so maybe that's why he's not as well-known yeah. as the New York school. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, but all, I mean, definitely all those all those poets have, uh, have, have affected me. Um, like the poem that I just read, All Tomorrow's Parties, is actually kind of like I was talking about, like a writing through there. I'm kind of writing through a poem by Susan Wheeler, um, who's a, a contemporary poet. I think she teaches at, she taught the, the new school and teaches at Princeton now. And her poem that I'm sort of rewriting here was itself a rewriting of a poem by Robert Frost. So for me, yeah, definitely literature and writing is about this conversation between different poets and different writers. And um, yeah, that I guess that would be another, I mean, not that I feel like I have any like kind of wisdom or experience to give to other people, but tongue in cheek. But what's <laughs> what's fun for me and what's engaging and exciting for me is is um, is like picking up on the discards or the you know the little unexplored alleyways that other writers have opened up but maybe not entered fully, and going into those spaces and and filling them out for myself. So so in a sense, yeah, like playing with the you know if you think of like the unwritten poems that other poets might have written, that's a great place to go in and explore and write your own poems, you know, through their work. And it's 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 great how often you do say play, mm-hmm. like how you're you're stressing that mm-hmm. as a as an approach to it. Yeah. Not um I've got some serious tales to tell. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things that you are covering, it's it is yeah. like a come something that's coming of like a person coming of age and yeah. finding when Finding I was, things. when I was, that's serious. Yeah, business. yeah. When I was doing um, journalism more, more, ser- more seriously or more devotedly in New York City, I interviewed this sort of famous potter named Eva Zeisel, and one of the things she said, you know, her whole, her, her aesthetic philosophy was that art or you know or craftsmanship is the playful search for beauty. But I, which I love, but I also think that like you know all things that are are. Um, worth doing are worth doing with serious play so you, you know it's, it's it's there's play but it's but it's also sort of like grounded by this seriousness that makes it exciting it's lovely yeah. that you just said serious play mm-hmm. chris because um one of my first writing teachers in in undergrad mm-hmm. um michael raymond mm-hmm. he used to say that mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. kind of blew me away at first <laughs> i suddenly it was like reading you know annie lamott's should uh, oh god i almost did the thing i never want people to do um first drafts like this essay <laughs> right, that right, she wrote right. yeah um, I'm, I'm familiar with that essay. yes and it's like a release and and having someone tell you it's serious yeah, play yeah then gives you gives you gives you release but yeah but also like why not give it your all since you might end up throwing it away but you might end up really like finding some fun things you never thought that you would find just by giving yourself license to be playful and to be be mischievous Yes, yeah. compelled to be mischievous. Yeah. And so that, ladies and gentlemen, um, is Christopher Schmidt on Living Writers Today. His book, The Next in Line, um, 
I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening, whether you're here in Ann Arbor, streaming in Chicago, Florida, and elsewhere. Thanks again to Brian Delaney for engineering. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, September 16th, 2009. From Bogota, Colombia, I'm Manuel Rueda. Coming up in today's program, environmental activists demand an end to oil projects in Canada's tar sands. Our demand is, is that they stop the tar sands. It's a dirty, filthy industry. On Capitol Hill, a key lawmaker presents his plans for health care reform. And we go to Argentina where hundreds of local groups are resisting gold mining in one of the country's largest water reserves. In the last five years, 500% more cancer cases. All these stories and more after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for Free Speech Radio News. The final counts are in in Afghanistan's contentious elections. Incumbent Hamid Karzai won 54.6% of the preliminary 